1: I'm Joe Devine and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. Today I'm joined by Alex Stewart to talk about the evolution of international football tactics at the 1994 and 1998 World Cups. We also discuss whether or not Alex is a hipster for thinking that Johan Cruyff is the greatest ever. Thanks for downloading and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Arrigo Sacchi at Italy in nineteen ninety four. He seems Alex like an important uh, moment for the for the country, or well, this seems like an important moment for the country. The team stopped employing any form of catenaccio. Um, this was for the f- first time in years, from what I gather, uh, and they. I think they created what, what you are describing as the first, um, or you know, one of the first examples of proper pressing football on the international stage. So quite a uh, important time for Italy.
0: Yes, um, Italy were sort of shackled really to, to forms of Catanaccio, um, really since, uh, you know, Herrera had such great success with it at Inter Milan. And some of those inter players that were crucial to what he was doing were also, you know, particularly for Chetty, were the backbone of the Italian side. So it seemed quite logical, I think, to transfer over um the the formation that was used the system that was used when you had players that were used to to doing it that that style of playing with a sweeper and with uh effectively a four-man defense although one of those wing backs playing very very high up the pitch again was predominant in Serie A for well, for decades really so it did take quite a significant break to pull the Italian side away from that and um I think the interesting thing about sachi as a as a coach is that he he didn't play professional football uh, at all um he in fact there was a joke that that Berlusconi who employed him at a c Milan was almost certainly a better footballer than he was despite Berlusconi being a businessman because Berlusconi had actually played non league to a reasonably high standard. but Sacchi came in and he had all of these ideas he'd sort of studied football he'd looked at how teams in Eastern Europe were playing with, uh, with a 4-4-2. He looked at pressing. He looked at controlling space. He took ideas from Total Football. He took ideas from Lobenowski, um, And he really revolutionized the way that Italian football was played. And that's why he had such great success with AC Milan. So moving him across the Italian national side um, was without question a kind of a logical move. Interestingly, he didn't really kind of recapture those levels of success after uh, 1994 um he kind of his his club career sort of dwindled off and i think that that's part of what you see with football tactics generally which is that somebody can come in make a pretty seismic change in the way that his team is playing uh, achieve great success with that but as people start to work it out and people start to find ways of countering it or emulating it even. or emulating it and and then getting a, a you know sort of that nullification of two sides that are set up similarly then you know, you need to find ways of thinking around that, and and maybe people who are quite so revolutionary um, struggle to think beyond that um, a little bit. So, what I find fascinating
1: about about Saki is that, um, as you just said, he wasn't a footballer, and that he's an example of of someone who, in some ways, as you say, we could maybe even stretch to use the word revolutionise certain uh, certain aspects of of tactics. Um, from a totally objective point of view. Now that interests me because I think there's often some thought to um, where a manager played during their career in terms of position on the pitch and how that might affect them. I mean, I remember talking uh, on a podcast with someone about uh, Slavan Bilic and when he took over at uh, at West Ham and how... um, the fact that he was a defender might shape the way that he you know views the game or his perspective or how he how he decides to uh, manage his team as a manager and i find it fascinating uh, that oriosaki uh, didn't didn't play at all i wonder if that actually in some ways was maybe even a benefit or gave him a uh, even more objective point of view and not you know c- coming coming to football um without
0: being I don't know, without his view sort of being sidelined in, 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 in any way beforehand. I think there's certainly something to that. I mean, there's there's definitely two challenges, I think, for a, a manager. The first would be, you know, how am I going to play? What system am I, am I going to use? What tactics am I going to use? And exposure to that sort of thinking as a professional would probably be helpful. Um, I think the other great issue is... How do you convince your players yeah. um, to listen to you? And and Sachi came up through the ranks. He started off as a youth coach, um, I think at Palermo. He, you know, he kind of worked his way up through various uh, different rungs of the ladder. So, so he kind of proved himself as a as a coach lower down the leagues, rather than proving himself as a footballer higher up. So he had he had some credibility by the time he arrived at AC Milan even though it was kind of a shock appointment. Um his his line on it was that in order to be a jockey you don't need to first have been a horse which I think is is quite a neat way of putting it and and in some ways I guess as well he he sort of paved the way certainly in sort of top European football for people like you know you could look at Arsene Wenger you could look at Jose Mourinho people who've not had prolific or successful careers uh, as players, although you know the counterweight to that is that for every one of those, you've got a Pep Guardiola or a Johan Cruyff, people who do successfully make the transition from from being a really a really excellent player, um, and in those instances, often quite a cerebral player um, to to being a good manager.
1: Well, we're going to come back to Johan Cruyff later because someone has called you a hipster, Alex, which <laughs> I um, absolutely agree with. But we'll get to that in the comments section. Uh, next, The next uh, question on my list um, is referring to that Arrigo-Sacchi side still. Italy stopped playing with a sweeper. Um, and I wonder what exactly the benefit of that
0: was. I suppose the major benefit is a relative one. Um, if you're playing teams that are matched up with you like for like... Then it makes sense to to have a spare man at the back because the rest of the pitch there isn't really a spare man because because teams are mirroring one another and if you've got a very capable sweeper in the sort of libero mold or libero mold um, then that player can you know perform their defensive functions but they can also step out they can also play long passes they can launch counterattacks, that kind of half back regista sort of element of of being that kind of player. And this is where we come to Franco Baresi who would have played that role if it were there, the
1: Italian centre back who had all of those skills. Absolutely. And and to be fair,
0: playing alongside Paolo Medini, who was, you know, no slouch himself and, and could certainly pass well. Um one of the things that you need to look at is is how many strikers the opposition are playing. And as teams started to drop at least one striker back uh, because man-marking in the defensive third was quite suffocating and that, that striker needed to have space, then you're saying, well, okay, you've got one striker, proper striker up front, and then somebody who's kind of floating back into the hole and either staying there as as an attacking midfielder or a Trequatista or whatever you want to call them, or or moving up as a second striker do we really need to have at least three defenders in that space? Yeah. yeah. Um, Because you're then potentially having two spare men all of the time. Now, if that sweeper is stepping up into central midfield, that kind of negates it, but then you could very reasonably ask why not just play them in central midfield from the off. Um, And, and I think as you see a move towards uh, a back four, then that's, Part of the answer there is is they're saying okay, well, actually, let's just deploy that player ahead of the back four, and they can screen or they can play as a deep-lying playmaker, and, and we don't need to to match up quite so much. The other point to make is that there are two types of sweeper. You know, sometimes those sweepers are that you know that that sort of elegant passing player, um, like a Scherrer or or uh, a Beckenbauer. Sometimes they're not; they're much more functional. And when you have, uh, for example, the Argentina three-five-two that we looked at in, in the last video, uh, that's they're playing three central defenders. They're not playing wing backs. So in that instance, you do need to have three central defenders, one of whom probably drops to cover, but is not a sweeper in quite the same way that right. we're talking about. More of a stopper. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it just, it allows the fact that if, if you don't have fullbacks or wingbacks, you're actually playing with wide midfielders, then yeah. then those centre-backs can split off slightly. One can drop back a little bit to cover through balls, that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you're doing that, it does make sense to keep a sweeper, but then we're not really talking about a sweeper in quite the same way. Mm. What this reminds
1: me of is uh, David Luiz at Chelsea because I saw a number of videos and um, had good uh, uh, analyses of him as well on, on programmes like Match of the Day uh, showing his passing range and showing how Chelsea had uh, developed a role for him to pass the ball out long from back. And when we were making this video and we were talking about Franco Baresi and talking about sweepers more generally, um, I just kind of linked link the two together. I mean, it's almost a return to form in, in some way, right?
0: Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely agree with that. And I think it's really interesting that that Luis is the example um, that that sort of springs to mind because he... Positionally, he he often seemed a bit confused in a back four, um, and he certainly has the the skills to play as a as a defensive midfielder as well. Having, you know, p- particularly Cahill, who is kind of you know a, a fairly quintessential stopper type defender, and then Aspaluqueta, who as a converted fullback understands defending but is considerably more mobile. There was a balance in that Chelsea back three that allowed Luis to to take on, I wouldn't say an attacking role, certainly, but but a counter-attacking role. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting actually that the the next by the numbers video um, that we've got coming out in in a week or so's time looks at counter attacks, and Chelsea scored the most counter-attacking goals, had the most counter-attacking shots, and and I do think the way that team was set up partly right from the back with luis uh, and and his long passing ability was key to the way that chelsea looked to break quickly uh, and it, and it is easier to do that if you've got a sweeper who's who's capable of doing that and it you know is a definitely an interesting change although again chelsea were playing with wing backs so you know they they could create that kind of uh, solidity defensively um through uh, Moses and Alonso and Alonso obviously started life as a fullback as well. So he kind of understood that, um, you know, so it, 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 it's not Chelsea weren't playing a 3-5-2 in, in the way that Argentina were in 86. So Luis had the cover to be able to carry the ball out. That
1: by-the-numbers video as well on on uh, counter-attacking. I believe by the time this podcast goes out, that will already be out. That would have been the last video in the series. If you haven't seen that, you can go back and watch that again. Fascinating stuff. Uh, The next question on my list, Alex, is uh, to say that we've reached the stage now where football is no longer so unrecognisable from the modern game. Oh, joy. Uh, And at one point during the video, you even note that... The Brazil side, I think it was the dropping off of, of Mauro Silva in a sort of I assume you meant a kind of Eric Dyer role, mm. but you note the similarities between the Brazil side of ninety four and the Tottenham side of twenty seventeen, a fact that I think most Arsenal fans would find amusing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is in a way. I think um I think what exactly what I was thinking of there is the, the Eric Dyer, Victor Wanyama uh thing and Southampton did it. Uh, when Pochettino was there as well. It's the idea of having a screening, actually often quite a tall screening defensive midfielder who can drop back Mm. and effectively play as kind of almost an advanced centre-back, centre-half even, in front of the two to protect when the wing-backs are pushing forwards. Um, And watching how that Brazil side played, which, you know, obviously when I'm, when I'm doing these videos, I, I sit down and I watch the old games, um, Mm. which is great fun. Actually. Um, I kind of saw that and thought, Oh, actually that, that does look very familiar. And I think as, you know, the, the, the use of the use of fullbacks or wingbacks is one of the features that I think does have a certain echo with, with football now, um, you know, having, players who get so advanced that that they could almost be seen as anywhere from a winger right the way back to a fullback you know particularly yeah, yeah. if you're looking at, at how the Brazilians played and so it's quite natural that if you're asking your wide defensive players to push up in that way that somebody's going to drop back and cover um and it you know it's it's no surprise to me really that that was an idea that was employed by Brazil in ninety four and continues to be used.
1: Let's move on to nineteen ninety-eight now, uh, because France became the, the fifth team to win the World Cup on home soil. How how do we quantify for this? And, and I mean why is uh the home advantage so staggering clearly in international football? I mean it's happened five has it happened
0: not since France, has it? Um not since France. I no.
1: It might have happened
0: in the Euros. Yeah, we don't. We're not talking about the euros, though, are we? We
1: don't. We don't know. But anyway, well, Denmark in '92
0: that happened. Mm. So that was, you know, that that was a surprise result. And and you got to remember as well things like, um, you know, Sweden, beaten finalists in '58. Um, you know, you do you do get other. It's not just winners who benefit. Um, why is it so staggering? I. It's really hard to say. I mean, you can look at... So take Argentina from that list. Well, that's... That's the more <laughs> obvious one. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the ones where, you know, home advantage wasn't simply translated onto the pitch. You know, it's mm-hmm. refereeing decisions and bribery and intimidation. Um, okay. I think I think travel's probably something to do with it. So, you know, teams teams are used to playing they can acclimatize you see you know european sides tend to do better in in europe generally even if it's not actually at home soil on home yeah. soil but the support the momentum um the sense of of doing it for the people you're playing in front of i you know I what
1: th- does it all mean though that's what that's uh, cuz i knew you were going to say and this is this is no criticism of you no but i know i know that the answer to that is the crowd and i often think you know obviously there's um there's the away goals rule with the with European football, where uh, it obviously um, it gives it gives some credence to the crowd to travelling to you know uh, to the home advantage, and I just wonder what exactly that means.
0: <laughs> what exactly it means? In what way?
1: I mean, okay, you're in you're in stadium in front of your fans. Yeah. Okay, and there's ninety percent. Your fans, 10% the other people's fans. Personally speaking, I often find that I struggle uh, under pressure in front of groups of people that I know, sometimes more than in front of groups of people that I don't know, whether they're supportive or not. And I'm just one example of a complicated psychological human being, Alex Stewart. So (laughs) what I'm asking you is how we can say that being in front of your fans makes you better or more likely to win at a football game what what is home advantage i know I'm, oh, I'm i mean this picking it apart to the molecular level th- i think i think, think we doesn't moved, make sense to me
0: yeah we've moved into psychology and potentially even philosophy at this point <laughs> rather than football <laughs> tactics i mean i i you know i i don't know is the honest answer i've never played football in front of a large crowd of people particularly um mm. So I think the closest I've got to that was a -a five-a-side tournament hosted at Dulwich Hamlets Ground, which, which was exciting. But, you know, I wouldn't say that there was particularly a massive support for pickles fc's five-a-side team i wasn't nervous no 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 um i had such low expectations of myself that (laughs) nerves don't really come into it
1: also you are a goalkeeper we should point out
0: that's correct yes so So there's
1: not much to be nervous about because you don't have to actually do a lot no
0: and and generally speaking you can find somebody else to blame if something goes wrong um yes so that's always helpful
1: well, let's move on then. You, you clearly can't answer my question about home advantage. I, I, which is I can't really, I'm sorry. Quite disappointing. Uh, I think you'll be able to answer this one though. France played with a Christmas tree formation in 98. One of my favourites It's the first time we've come across uh, this style recently in our historical videos, or certainly in the World Cup campaign. Can you talk us through the, 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 the positives and the negatives of, of that formation?
0: Yes. So the positives would be that... Large, well, largely the most positive thing is why the formation was created in the first instance, which was to have Zinedine Zidane as a focal point in the 10-roll um, and yet mitigate for the fact that Zidane, while clearly an absolute genius with the football at his feet in an attacking sense, did bugger all defensively and wasn't very quick. So you need to accommodate him while at the same time maintaining a defensive solidity. So the first point is to string those three midfielders across the pitch. And they're not, you know, Petit, Karimber, and, and Deschamps were not clogging midfielders. You know, they weren't, they weren't people who just ran around and, and hit other people. And that was all they did, um, as, as you can see from that final goal. Um, in in the final, where Petit, you know, runs beats his man, lovely little finish. You know, he was he was clearly a class player. And Karim had a great range of passing. Deschamps was probably the closest to being an out and out defensive midfielder. Um, but that that was a, a foundational base that meant that the front three, who were quite rotational, and you know, while they line up in the Christmas tree, with a sort of the the front three being a two-one, you know, on the pitch there was a huge amount of fluidity. There, Djokovic was often the furthest man forward. Givash would drop off, or Zidane would find himself furthest up, and those guys could pretty much play how they wanted and not worry enormously about their defensive responsibilities because the midfield three behind them was so solid. Um, the major issue with it, which is the major issue with with many formations, is width. A lot of attacking chances, anybody who's played Football Manager 17 will tell you this, a lot of chances will come from down the wings. And in any formation with a narrow midfield, you're relying on your fullbacks being able to get forward uh, to provide those opportunities. That's not just necessarily in terms of the fullback being the one who delivers the cross. But if the fullbacks aren't out there to support, even if you've got you know, one of your front three drifting out wide to provide those crossing opportunities, they will need assistance. So, we're not necessarily looking at at kind of, you know, Lizarazu and and Turam being the ones that are delivering the final ball, but you need to have those players getting up there. Now, France were lucky in that in Turam and Lizarazu, they had exceptional fullbacks who could do that. Um, But, you you always have to be careful when you're playing with an, a narrow midfield formation. How do we get men forward into the wide positions to support whether that's the forwards breaking out and midfielders pushing up into the gap or it's the fullbacks pushing forwards? Um, and of course, defensively, that can leave you a little bit vulnerable on the counter if you've got those players pushed up. One of the ways that that, that can be countered, and we've seen it, We've seen good instances say with Hoffenheim uh this season is where one of the fullbacks pushes up and the other one shifts in and the team sort of pendulums across so you know you there are ways of mitigating that risk, but um that's it that's the balance is basically defensive solidity and being able to get forwards with numbers wide and that France team they beat Brazil three nil in the
1: final. Um, and it sounds like this, this I think I did watch this game, but I was still quite young and I don't I don't quite remember it. I think two thousand and two was the first World Cup that I really remember, you know, watching and participating in. So I I mean to me three 0 sounds like a, a conclusive result um against as well, a team we should remember who won the World Cup tournaments, both of them, either side of this one. Um so, you know, Brazil were obviously a fantastic team at this time. How convincing was that game? Um
0: I mean it's interesting, you, you look at that final goal, the petite goal, and, and moments before, um, hits the bar and then Rivaldo has a, a shot forced wide for a corner. So even at two nil with, you know, seconds to go, Brazil were still pushing. I think it's it's not it's not as one sided as it might appear. You've also got to remember this is the final where Ronaldo had uh it's it's all very murky isn't it but he had a fit uh on the afternoon of the final and there was a lot of debate about would he play and if he did play would he start and then there was a suggestion that that possibly Brazil had almost been forced into to picking him because of of sponsorship and media interest and and so on. So he wasn't at his best. Um, and you know, particularly if you look at at two thousand and two, you know, Ronaldo carried Brazil to a great yeah. extent. So if if they'd had a fully fit Ronaldo who hadn't had those issues beforehand, would the score have been what it was? I don't know you know Zidane's first two goals were were poor brazilian marking um i, I think a, a you know a 3-0 scoreline certainly has a gloss on it but that this was not a bad brazilian side by any stretch of the imagination um but but france were a great team france were the best team in the tournament so the fact that they won it is absolutely fair it's whether the margin of victory quite reflects uh the one-sidedness of the final i'm not entirely sure of that
1: okay let's uh, go over to a couple of user comments now gordon uh gordon did have a surname but i did not write it down so apologies gordon Uh, gordon asks uh why well gordon says this alex why did you not mention the croatian squad of the 1998 world cup Uh, it was our first ever world cup so i assume gordon is from croatia Uh, And we finished third. You should really improve this series uh, by not just making it about World Cup winners and famous players and managers uh, that you already mentioned in previous videos. I mean, firstly, I think I would just uh, take a moment to say um, that inevitably people will be left disappointed by players or teams that we leave out. Uh, But if you are watching a seven minute video on, uh, you know, one or two tournaments or even in some cases in the past, Alex has had to write scripts that... Uh, across three different tournaments um, in the history of evolving tactics. Uh, that has taken a very, very, very long time to write and to create um, into a video. And obviously we don't have time to fit anyone in, or fit everyone in, I should say. Um, also, the other thing I would mention is that uh, there's a video going out, uh, oh, they well, will already be out by the time this podcast is out, but there's another video, we're doing two per week on each era. So Alex is this week, for example, looking at nineteen ninety four to nineteen ninety eight. Uh and then Paul Ansorge uh picks one tournament and writes the story of that as well. So often if we don't mention something in one, it is mentioned in the other. Please do check, um not necessarily before you comment, but just remember that there's there's a few there's a few uh, different pieces of content going out all in the same week. Uh, but with that said, Alex, I wonder uh, if you want to you know, say a word on the Croatian squad, or if you'd like to um,
0: give a reason beyond any of the others that, that, that they weren't mentioned. Um, I mean, the, the Croatian squad was was interesting. Um, and I think, I mean, to answer the point briefly, Croatia played with a sort of 3-5-2, 5-3-2. Five, five, yes, the interesting point, I suppose, about Croatia was Igor Tudor, um, who did actually play as a defensive midfielder, sometimes ended up, I think, playing at Juventus for quite a period, was was a sort of sweeper there. Um, and they had an unusually creative midfield. Um, so Zvonny Boban, who was a wonderful player, who was at AC Milan for a long time, uh, Proznetsky and Zanovic. Um, and that that midfield didn't really play with a holding player at all. So the onus was on whether it was, um, whether it was Tudor or uh, Dario Simic or Igor Stimak to, to kind of push forwards and, and add some tackling solidity to the midfield. Um, look, I would love to be able to write to the depth uh, that, that some of these World Cups merit. Uh, the videos would be half an hour long on each World Cup. Um, it's just not possible to cover everything um, to that degree of detail. I think in terms of the earlier World Cups as well, uh, it's it's difficult to research ones where there isn't television footage of any great length. It's quite hard to get a feel for how teams played. Um, obviously, that becomes less of an issue as as you move further forwards in history. And by this time, obviously, all games are pretty much available on the internet but at the same time you've then got an issue where all games are available on the internet so I could sit there and watch every single one and find fascinating things to say about you know the Argentine side of 1998 or whatever but it's you you just can't you you have to you have to limit yourself to trying to get an overview of the the trends that occurred and I think, as the series has gone on, one of the things that's that's become apparent is that there are interesting things, for example, about the way that Brazil changed their tactics quite significantly over the course of of consecutive world Cups and yet always end up you know doing quite well. France in this instance, yes, not only did they win but they won with a formation that was you know very unusual for the time and and I think you know it's 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 difficult, but you have to pick out. Things that are both tactical evolutions and changes that are interesting, but have some sort of thread that links everything together. So, you know, if if there were time and if there were space, it would be great to, to cover everybody to that degree of depth. Um, but there just isn't. and And I apologize for that.
1: Killer Chaos123 says, I love how you guys referenced Inverting the Pyramid. Genuinely feel geeky. No need to feel geeky. Killer Chaos is a wonderful book and uh, I've read it and I myself am a stone-cold jock so I think everything's fine there. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, hold on, let me just stop laughing. Good. Big Jelly Eel, wonderful name, says, can't wait for the 21st century it's not that great. Uh, Big, I was making a joke about uh, the the world generally, rather than um, football specifically. Big Jelly also asks Alex, um, "There's a deeper lying regista, right? So, so has there ever been a defensive counterpart to that, like a destroyer that plays up high? I think we've talked about this a little bit before uh, with
0: yeah we, Marwan Fellaini. Yeah, we talked about this in the uh, in the man marking versus zonal marking video." um
1: and what do you what would you call that you would just call that a a, a defensive and ganche uh
0: oh no i wouldn't i wouldn't call it an in an ganche because that's that's very definitely an attacking role i i don't i don't know I, does everything need to have a name I mean, it's uh, kind of. Can you not just say an attacking midfielder who's got specific defensive duties? I think that sounds. I, confusing. A, well, maybe and and okay. There's football terminology is an odd thing, right? So you you look at. I would call them the cannon. The cannon.
1: Yeah, you know the the, the sort of the, the the metallic fierce artillery that that shoves through.
0: Yeah, no, the, I, the cannon. I know what a cannon is. Yeah. Um, no, I I think you can. I think you can get caught up in trying to trying to find or borrow, import kind of clever names for everything.
1: The Breeze Block.
0: And uh, that, that it's not necessary to, to have a name for everything. I also think that in terms of using attacking midfielders in that way, which does happen from time to time, um, it tends to be quite an unusual deployment. So it's, it's in response to a specific threat. It's not a regular thing where a team will pretty much always line up with a defensive playmaker in that kind of role it's something that you might deploy now and again to counter a specific threat so i'm not entirely sure that it needs a name however i'm sure somebody on twitter will be able to suggest something better than the breeze block if they want and then we can all use it and feel very clever about ourselves
1: i would like to use it i enjoy labels um okay big jelly Eel, I hope that answers your question. Thank you for your comment. And finally, my favourite question, and maybe my favourite comment ever uh, on balance in the history of YouTube, uh, Kev Foder commented on our last podcast, um, accusing Alex uh, of, who, who said at the time that he thought uh, Johann Cruyff was the greatest ever. Um, he accused uh, that you uh, of giving a hipster answer to that question uh so i I wonder what your retort might be to that well my first because that because that is
0: sort of true (laughs) okay what is a hipster in that rig i mean I, i know this is a very broad question for a football tactics podcast but if if you're saying that a hipster is somebody who's picking a deliberately niche answer then i don't think saying that Cruyff is the greatest footballer ever is particularly niche. I mean among, well, no, no, most people but, uh, would...
1: hold on a second though within the context of the greatest footballer ever argument I'm not saying that Cruyff isn't niche uh, it, it is but but I mean it, no, I I am saying that I am saying that Johan Cruyff is someone who is not anywhere nearly as frequently mentioned within that you know the the, the top 1 the greatest ever role as a handful of other players and of course I'm not saying that he's not up there in the top five but I think you know in terms of people uh, it would be described as niche someone who would say that he was the greatest ever and I can absolutely understand the reason as to why in fact there was a couple of very eloquent responses to that comment uh, in the thread it's on episode 17 of the podcast so if you're interested you can go and have a look and read some of the comments some of them absolutely nail it and I expect Alex to say some of these things as well um, for the record I don't actually disagree. Uh, with with the answer either i just find it amusing that someone's called you a <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay well yeah in that regard maybe you know i i collect vintage football shirts and i write reasonably obscure tactics videos so i probably would fall into that sort of demographic should you wish to put me in it um i like labels yeah i mean it does make things easier doesn't it um so in in very brief uh answer uh Cruyff partly because his impact as a manager was so significant partly because his impact off the pitch as a professional footballer was so significant in terms of negotiating pay deals pushing through the professionalization of football in Holland uh Understanding about sponsorship and commercial arrangements um, partly because he was central to what I think is probably the most aesthetically pleasing style of football total football um, and when I say central, I don't mean simply that as a player his skills made it work, but that he he kind of helped come up with it. Uh, in conversation with people like Renus Michaels and, and Kovacs. And they, you know, it was, it was a Genesis of, of a number of players working together to come up with that style. So he wasn't just told, right, you do this thing and then it'll work. You know, there were discussions there and, and I X was, was a collaborative club in that way. And he was very important to that, which is I think why he transitioned so successfully into being a manager. um, I think, in terms of his cultural significance, um, that he was this kind of uh, symbol of new football, but also of a, of a new sort of society in Holland at the time—a um, a blend of kind of social permissiveness and and not not capitalism necessarily. I, I suppose, to an extent, you know, but but kind of being who you want to be, but making the best of it. For yourself, as well as being this wonderfully elegant footballer who uh you know who who scored great goals and and took part in one of my favorite teams ever and I think if you look at at the other people that are are kind of folded in with him, so it would be people like Maradona and and pele um while they might in some instances be better players, they don't have the same Kind of resonance throughout, I would argue, throughout football generally, throughout culture. Absolutely not. Um, That—that's my answer. I'm—I'm I'm quite happy to have people disagree with me. I don't say it's—it's it's Well, it's a right, very—it's a very it's,
1: good answer, and it's a very clever answer, Alex. Because I believe what you said was that. Johan Cruyff was the greatest ever, although you did not specify what he was the greatest ever at. <laughs> and I think uh, what you've just said is that he's the sort of—I don't know the best how to describe it—but he's sort of the best person to have been in and around football ever. And uh, maybe I think combining those top levels in each individual skills across the board yeah. is maybe you know the highest hitter.
0: Well, I think overall, I think he's. I think if you wanted to be really specific about it, you could say that he was across the range of you know as a footballer as a as a stylist as a manager as a cultural icon all of those different things he is the most significant footballer Mm. it helps that he was extraordinarily gifted as well and and i think purely as a player he's got to be top five um well
1: he's got a you know i mean he's got the Cruyff turn maradona's just got
0: the maradona seven which is something that and, and the hand of Kids God, I mean, in the park. Maradona is is you know he cheated.
1: Wow. Okay. So, <laughs> no, no. no I, I was Mar- well, we, could, we could say at least be- that Mar- Maradona actually-
0: has been reduced to sort of uh,
1: bickering with players and and uh, no, Maradona moaning about new managers.
0: Maradona's had had his problems, um, and you know I, I think that's that's quite sad actually. But for me, the one that I, I this and this may cause enormous ructions, but I think Pele's the one that's a bit overrated.
1: I I kind of
0: I don't know, it's I and I do feel like it's very difficult for for people now to and this is one of the reasons I might be wrong, but there there just is nowhere near as much footage of Pele playing. For us to be able to to get any real sense, what you're effectively looking at is is an enormously uh, impressive goal scoring record, much of which was done in Brazilian club football, and some of which is open to debate anyway. Um, and and some obviously hugely important performances in World Cups, but to kind of really get a holistic sense of a person's impact, and and this this is the point that we were talking about. In the last podcast where you can say, if you look at players like like Zendelar or Hidiguti, who were playing in a pre-television era, you know, those players might have had much more of an impact on football than any of us can really understand. But because we weren't alive to see them and there's no real record of that left now, it becomes incredibly difficult. To, to quantify what that impact was how mm-hmm. they played uh and all the rest of it so so these are to an extent always going to be moot points um i i just i stand by cruyff and if you think that's hipster i i don't care see
1: what's um that's the interesting thing about it being uh our time and 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 what, what stands the test of time uh for me what is culturally relevant about diego maradona is that uh an actor plays him in the film *Youth* that I watched recently. I'm not sure if you've seen that film. I've, I've not. No, it's a Paolo Sorrentino film. Uh, it's not very good. Uh, well, it's okay. I don't know. I don't want to talk it down. But my favourite thing about it was that uh, this Diego Maradona character pops up. It's all set in a uh, very, very expensive hotel kind of slash OAP resort in Switzerland, and. Uh, uh, Michael Caine and Harvey Keitel are kind of old friends who are both, you know, spending s- six months of their year in this place. Uh, and neither of the, you know, the, the joke all the way throughout the film is how much of you urinated today? Oh, three drops for me. You know, it's for an old crowd, Alex. But uh, this Diego Maradona character a- appears and he's just this morbidly obese man who has to use an oxygen tank whenever he's like getting in and out of a chair and he's sort of like floating in all the pools but he's still you know his wife is is uh, Miss Universe or something and there's this amazing scene um, and I don't know how this this actor is doing it but he, he's he's doing kick ups like really high in the air and about ten of them in a row and the shot is just a very silent shot of him doing this and he again He's morbidly obese, and he's he can't really get kick his leg up, but he can kind of tuck it in and hit. He's, so he's hitting the ball with the, with his ankle. It's quite astonishing. But um, it did. It took me about half an hour of the film to realise it was supposed to be him. <laughs> uh, it's it's worth it's worth watching. The film's not brilliant, but it is it is an interesting it's an interesting movie. So if you want to uh, get a sneak peek of what is. Uh, Paolo Sorrentino's prediction either for an alternate universe of Diego Maradona or potentially Diego Maradona's uh, immediate future. Do watch the film. Youth, I have overrun and I must leave now. But uh, thanks very much for, for joining us, Alex. And we'll chat to you again in a couple of weeks for the final podcast of the World Cup campaign.
0: I look forward to it, Joe. Take care, mate.